Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network podcast. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today's show kicks off a new occasional series of podcasts on the state of research about the genocide in Rwanda. I can think of no better person to start with than Michael Barnett. Michael is University Professor of International Affairs and Political Science at the George Washington University and has written several books on international relations and on the history of humanitarianism. His book, Eyewitness to a Genocide, the United Nations in Rwanda, is one of the seminal texts about the UN's conduct during the Rwandan genocide. Originally published in 2002, it's recently been reissued with a new afterword. And that seemed like a perfect excuse to invite Michael on the show to talk about the book and his conclusions. So it's a terrific book, and I'm really eager to talk about it, about it with him. So with that, Michael, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books in Genocide Studies. Well, thank you for having me. So I'd like to give our guests a chance to say something about how they um, became interested in this kind of topic of mass atrocities and genocide studies. So maybe you could take a second and just start by saying, how did you become an, an academic and inter- interested in international affairs? Uh, well, I, I want to say I, in some ways I was born that way, <laughs> uh, but that probably doesn't sound right, even though I kind of feel it. Uh, I had a long-standing interest in, in history. When I was a kid, in fact, I lived in Israel for a time, which stoked my interest in the Middle East and international affairs. And uh, on my return and going through uh, junior high and high school, uh, it was just something that was almost in my blood. So when I got to college, that's what I knew I wanted to do, hmm. and uh, then it was a, a kind of a seamless transition to get my PhD in international affairs. So I wish I could tell you that there was this big <laughs> apocryphal moment, you know, where you know bells were ringing, and I kind of knew I was on the wrong path and switched. But it's, um, you know, in retrospect, it, it seems pretty plotting. So so that's interesting. I'm wondering, for some people, their interests are driven by some kind of core question or some kind of core concern uh, that drives them to to study. Um, If you kind of moved along that path in the way you've described, is there some kind of core question at the heart of your kinds of inquiry or your teaching, or, or, or do you... Are you simply interested in international affairs and, and move from topic to topic without a lot of uh, common approaches? Yeah, I've, I've been a dilettante. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess one of the things that has defined my career, for good or for ill, is that I've had, um, I, I guess I would say, a variety of interests. And I don't know if I get bored, but I think one of the, the virtues of academics is that 
uh, and especially for those fortunate with tenure, to have mm-hmm. tenure mm-hmm. is that we have the ability to remake ourselves and to switch. And all of a sudden, if you decide to teach a course, you can, and you can become a, a so-called expert. And so I began, uh, in keeping with my childhood and longstanding interest in the Middle East, mm-hmm. I began by doing international relations in the Middle East. And did that for about, I, I guess, I don't know, about a decade when I... I guess I would have to say I just got worn out by the Middle East. It's it's a tough place to live, to visit, to study, to write about, uh, and I guess I didn't have the courage or I was too weak uh, where my friends who continued on had, I, I guess, a lot more internal fortitude. <laughs> but uh, so as part of it was uh, some of the interests I had in the Middle East, uh, I answered, uh, and so I was ready to move on. But the other was... And this really was a kind of um, unexpected turning point is uh, when I ended up with a posting at the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mission to the U.N. and was started working on peacekeeping operations and then found myself uh, towards the end of my, my one-year post uh, very much swept up into the thick of um, the Rwandan genocide, you know, from the vantage point of, the, of New York. And, you know, that kind of, that changed, you know, it changed the course of my research and in many ways it changed my life. Mm-hmm. Um, it put me on a path of very different sets of interests, uh, from peacekeeping to refugees to humanitarianism affairs to religion, uh, more broadly global governance. And so in, in that respect, there's been you know, a set of themes that have come through. I, um, it's, it's, I, I just, uh, just a, a different shameless book plug. <laughs> uh, I finished a book last year called The Star and the Stripes, A History of the Foreign Policies mm-hmm. of American Jews. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I had to write a preface and, and as we always do, we have to make sense of our life, even though yeah. it's pretty random and chaotic. And I realized that in many ways, the things I've been wrestling with from the Middle East to humanitarianism represent, in many ways, counterpoints between the particular and the universal, Hmm. or the tribal and the cosmopolitanism. And, you know, I think in many ways that, you know, trying to figure out the relationship between that two, if I could say that there's a theme, uh, I I guess that would be it. Uh, So... And I guess that would be my answer until I think of something better next week. <laughs> well, and that's maybe a nice nice chance to pivot to the, the book we're going to talk about today, because that's a particular case study in this broader um, interest that you describe. Uh, and you mentioned a little bit, so, so, so you end up working with the United uh, the, uh, UNS mission to the UN during the Rwandan genocide in the months leading up to that. How did you end up there? Well, it was because of this, you know, really fabulous fellowship offered by the Council on Foreign Relations, and uh, and it it was designed for people who were 35 years and younger. So I was a young man then, mm-hmm. and uh, it went, you know, it was designed to take people who are in the policy world and put them in the academic world or a think tank for a year, so they can actually get out of the machinery and think a little more about and reflect a little bit more on what they've done. 
And for academics like myself, it's designed to take you out of the ivory tower, put you somewhere in the belly of the beast so you can understand <laughs> just how complicated uh, policymaking is. And um, I decided I wanted to go to the U.S. mission to the U.N. Uh, for a number of reasons. One, one was this is, you know, right in 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 the um, aftermath of the end of the Cold War, the UN mm -hmm. was getting a lot of attention. I had been interested in third world security. There was more peacekeeping going on, and so it looked like a uh, an interesting place to get that kind of bird's eye view. And so I was fortunate enough to get picked up by the U.S. mission to the UN, and began then working on peacekeeping operations, mainly Somalia, when we decided by October that we were done with Somalia because mm -hmm. of Black Hawk Down. Mm -hmm. there, wasn't, it, there wasn't a lot for me to do at that point because our goal was simply to try and get people to, you know, other states to come in and substitute for the, for the U.S. Yeah. And so by December... The, one of the other people, a four-time, uh, full-time foreign service officer, who had been working on Rwanda, on on Africa, lots of different operations going on there. She was overwhelmed. She decided that you know, that I was being uh, underworked, and that <laughs> maybe the best thing she could do for her and for me was to offload those peacekeeping operations in Africa that no one really quite cared about. So she kept South Africa, which was not an operation, but mm -hmm. it was, that was the time when you were seeing the transition to Mandela. Uh, there were some other big ones that were taking place. And I got Rwanda and Burundi and I think Mozambique because those were ones hmm. that, frankly, the United States didn't care about. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was safe to let me loose. Uh, because it's not that I could do any harm, and even if I did harm, no one would really care. Uh, so that's, you know, that's how I came to huh. start working on Rwanda in January '94. So, so the book, I believe, originally came out in 2002, and so I assume that means you started writing maybe in the late '90s. Um, what what drove you to decide you needed to write the book? You, you know, it's a it's a great question because for a long time I didn't want to write a book, mm -hmm. uh, which is, uh, I, and part of it was I, I I think I didn't think I had anything to say. Hmm. And uh, the first piece I wrote though was um, about myself, mm -hmm. <laughs> so it got published in the Anthropology Journal where you huh. write about yourself. Oh wow! Uh, and um, and that was attempting to try and make sense of how it is that the Security Council could make sense of its own indifference. Mm -hmm. uh, because here you had genocide, and the council wasn't really doing anything, and there was a particular kind of discourse that, was, that I could observe on reflection that essentially said, we need to sacrifice the Rwandans to save the UN. Uh, and... Uh, which I found, in retrospect, pretty chilling, but that was kind of the, the consequentialist logic that was taking place, uh, and that's a forgiving view of it. And I, I sort of feel like I, I sort of said my piece at that point. I didn't really feel like I had much else to say, and then 
a few years later, I was actually in a conversation uh, by chance with uh, someone who was actually heading up one of the first big inquiries into Rwanda. Mm. And he was interviewing people, he interviewed me, and he asked me what I thought about these documents, these cables that have been coming from Dallaire to uh, Kofi Annan and, and Secretary General Boutros Ghali. Cables that were very explicit about what was taking place on the ground and what he wanted to do. And this is the first time I'd heard of these cables. Hmm. I, I had never heard of them. Uh, and I was kind of in shock. And uh, I sort of started asking around if other people knew about these cables, and, and, and I was getting this kind of no, no, no. And, you know, it turned out that, in fact, the UN had basically, you know, the Secretary General's office and the Department of Peacekeeping had basically buried them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he had gotten access to them, someone had leaked them from, from, uh, from the UN. And, you know, it was the first time that led me to believe that there was something really that it wasn't going on in the Security Council, that there was something else going on in the UN itself that I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. And I think like a lot of people who were even marginally involved in Rwanda, and I would consider myself the marginal of marginals, uh, it had had a deeply, it had a profound impact, emotional and moral impact. I think, I don't know anybody who walked away Mm -hmm. in retrospect who didn't feel changed. Uh, and for pe- people like, I would just say myself, it took a long time to process. Mm. And it was something where, I think as I write in the beginning of the book, I, I thought about Rwanda every day for years. Mm. And that's not an exaggeration. It just kind of uh, anchored in my in my moral imagination. But, you know, the... By the time I began to sort of see these documents in 98-99, I had the sense that there was this other book I wanted to do, and I didn't know it, though. At the time, I was actually writing a a separate book with a a close friend, Martha Finnamore, Mm -hmm. and one of the chapters was going to be on Rwanda, and this is about the UN and pathologies and dysfunctions of organizations. And I, I remember I sent her the chapter, which was, probably about 120 pages long. <laughs> and, and, and she read it and went, Michael, this is great stuff, but what's it got to do with our book? <laughs> and, and it was at that point that I kind of realized that there was a lot that was inside me that I really felt like I had to get out. There was mm-hmm. a particular way I wanted to tell the story uh, and that I, I, I probably just needed to do it. It was still this kind of act of therapy, huh. uh, that there was a story I just felt like I had to tell, and I thought that there was, you know, given, and the other thing is I've been interviewed by a lot of other programs about the UN and the US, and I kind of felt like they were missing mm. what I thought was a big chunk of the story, which was that people at the UN thought they were doing the right thing. Yeah. Uh, even though everybody else from the outside looking in considered this to be incredibly immoral. And I wanted to recover that story. That was very important to me. So, uh, so yeah. So, so was, I want to unpack... Was, go ahead, sorry. A corrective. Mm-hmm. So I want to unpack a number of things you said, but, but for some people who may not know quite as much about the context, um, 
You, you titled your first chapter, It Was a Very Good Year. Why that title for that chapter? Because uh, I love Frank Sinatra. The reason for that for that initial chapter was I wanted to convey the sense of tremendous hope and optimism that began to infuse the UN after the end of the Cold War. And so here was an organization that had been maligned and sidelined for 40-odd years, had basically been stunted in its promise by the Cold War. And then the Cold War ends, it creates this opening for the UN, and the UN now feels like it's going to live the life that it was always meant to live. Mm. And so, but it was a very short period, so it was a very good year in which everybody, you know, the UN went from, from basically being a, um, a backbencher to having a starring role. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for many it was, you know, a very heady experience. Uh, it, it was um, uh, it was like breathing life into the UN for the first time in years, and so I, I really wanted to. It was important to me for the story that people really have a sense that uh, that those at the UN actually thought they were having a second life, yeah. and uh, and really wanted this to work. And yet, by say the time you got to the UN or about the time you got to the UN, seems, things seem to have gone so wrong. Yeah, I, I take no personal responsibility. <laughs> uh, but this was, a t- you know, things... I, I think this was, a, you know, it, there are a lot of things that were going wrong, um, but in, in terms of outcomes, Somalia was a mess, Bosnia was a mess, uh, there were some successes in Central America, but no one pays attention to successes. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was this, I think, growing concern that the UN was out of its league. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there was that that people needed to pull back a fair bit, get a better sense of what the UN could do, uh, think about the reforms that would need to be made if it was going to be able to accomplish what was being asked of it. And so I think, you know, in many ways there was, um, rightfully, I think there was a real pause Mm -hmm. in terms of of, uh, thinking about the UN. So so that seems like an odd time then to go ahead and launch another, um, I don't know, intervention's not the right word, but Chapter 6 mission. How does the UN and why does the UN then decide that that's the right moment to intervene in Rwanda? You know, for, and, and this is happening right around the time of Somalia. So mm-hmm. you're right. It, the, the, there was, you could hear a growing moratorium placed on the authorization of more peacekeeping operations. Uh, this is, you know, Rwanda is kind of the last gasp. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and the reason why is, is several fold. Uh, one is France wanted it, and there's um, if you're going to get an operation, there has to be a sponsor. Yeah. And so France was pretty insistent that that Rwanda should have one. And so it doesn't mean like it doesn't mean that what France wants, France gets. <laughs> uh, but there was 
uh, a belief that maybe it would work. And this was where the sales job really happened, which was the Rwandans themselves made a compelling case that this would be an easy operation. It's almost as if it would be self-executing. And by that, I mean that you it didn't require much from the U.N., it wouldn't require much of a peacekeeping operation. They would come in. The parties were already invested, uh, and it was just a matter of letting uh, the peace process unfold naturally. And so you know, this was actually music to the ears of the Security Council because at this time they're also looking for winners. They're looking for a, 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 good, uh, a good success case. And they're being told that Rwanda would be easy, and so for many this was, uh, it presented the possibility then that that the UN could actually have good news. Hmm. So there were, you know, there are a variety of circumstances that that played into the decision. is there reason for the Security Council, and you, you, you talked about this some in the original version and then come back to it in the afterward in the new version. Is, is there a reason for the Security Council to be concerned in early 1994 that Rwanda was headed for genocide? No. No. I, I don't think uh, anybody, no one used the term genocide. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, you know, there's this report that people have now unburied by the UN Human Rights Commission that mentions the word, but, hmm. you know, you, you can find, you know, as we know, if you search long and hard enough, you can find a little bit of a, you know, a, an echo somewhere that that you can sort of turn into a warning sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no one really thought of it that way. I think everybody was very concerned that the I mean, the way the logic would go is that the process would unravel. I mean, that was a very real concern. And if the process unraveled, it would lead to a civil war. Mm. And civil wars are really nasty, and lots of people would die. Uh, and we'd seen this in Rwanda before. We'd seen this in Burundi. Uh, there was, you know, obviously some concern about the scale, but, you know, no one... At that point, no one imagined using the term genocide. And it wasn't a term that was actually used much mm-hmm. uh, in other cases as well. I mean, they, the term in Bosnia was ethnic cleansing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't use the term genocide. So genocide was not really uh, the term of art. I'm, so, so you cite uh, Linda Melbourne. Uh, among others, as of a, 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 a group of academics or, or journalists or reporters who have who have tried to go backwards to prove something of a conspiracy, um, I'm wondering, without I guess personally taking, maybe I should phrase it this way: Why is it so appealing to try, find those kind of clues before the event? Why do you think that's so compelling for those who who try to do that? Yeah, I, I don't know. You'd have to ask them, quite yeah. honestly. Um, you know, my my, and I, I have real disagreements with their, you know, to some extent their methodology. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would also say their ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that, you know, good historians 
would try to understand the way it is that policymakers viewed the situation at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I try to do. I try to recreate what's taking place at the UN so that people have a reasonable sense of what they knew, what they could have known, uh, what, you know, the, the mood, uh, the calculations, the information. Uh, it, it is a fairly messy world mm-hmm. in which, and this is, I think, so important to understand, in which decision makers are living under a lot of uncertainty and risk. And it's very difficult to know what is the right thing. Uh, and I think that that very messy world is one that, you know, it doesn't tie up into a neat story. I think a lot of times we need villains. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to create fairy tales of good and evil. And uh, we need to sometimes create whipping boys. The UN was the whipping boy first. Uh, and that just seemed natural because it was the United States. And, you know, what the United States wants, the United States gets. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was, I think, then, a, 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 you know, the French, you know, got a fair bit of, um, came under a fair bit of criticism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, it, it's just, you know, part of it is the takeaway is that there's no one person. Uh, it's that no one wanted to do anything about Rwanda. Mm. It, it, it's not as if there was someone just aching to get in and being held back. There was, you know, the mm. the goal was to keep your distance, mm-hmm. and they were very successful at it. So I, I think the problem, though, for, you know, I, it's very tempting, especially for journalists, to try to find that smoking gun, uh, that one piece of evidence that will really unlock everything and show who is to blame. And I, I just, you know, sometimes that's the case, mm-hmm. that there is a smoking gun and you can find someone to criminally indict uh, but in a lot of these situations where we're dealing with complex organizations like the UN, uh, it's, uh, for me, the, the in some ways, I, I guess I would say, I think that my story is much more troubling. Yeah. Uh, because these are, you know, to borrow the phrase from Chris Browning, mm-hmm when he talks about ordinary Germans and the Holocaust, uh, these are ordinary bureaucrats. Um, and, you know, and, and they're well-meaning bureaucrats. And, and here's what you end up with. And I think for, for people like Linda Melvin and others, it's just, I, I think it's, um, I, there's a sense in which someone has to be blamed. Mm-hmm. And I think there's lots of blame to go around. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the method by which we try to assign blame and responsibility is is actually very complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And we have to, I think, proceed carefully. Yeah, I would, it, there's a couple of follow-ups I guess I would have with that. One of which is it's, it's interesting to compare the evolution of Holocaust studies and the way Holocaust studies tried to understand the emergence of the Holocaust with 
with the historiography of Rwanda. In, in, in each case, it started out with an effort to find specific individuals who have been plotting for a while to do something like this. And then it moved on to a, to a more complicated, nuanced case, the way you've laid out. And I've, I've just read, uh, I'm forgetting his first name. I think it's Andre, and is it Guishao? Is that how you pronounce it? Just read his, his new book, which is a much more complicated, nuanced um, description of events in Rwanda. And so I'll be curious to see whether this kind of continues, this parallel evolution continues. But, but the other follow-up, I guess I would say, is you, you talk specifically in the book, and, and you started to talk about it here, about the specific bureaucratic culture of the United Nations and, and how yeah. that was important. So I wonder if you could expand on that. Yeah, there. You know, I, I talk about it. You know, in this case, as the cultural production of indifference. And um, although I think Hannah Arendt was was really off historically when she talked about Eichmann, mm-hmm. the notion of the banality of evil is such a terrific concept or metaphor that I use it. I, I draw from it, mm-hmm. uh, not not in a heavy-handed way. Uh, but what I want to try and do in many ways is capture the extent to which these are people in the organ in the UN who are following rules, and it doesn't mean they're following rules diligently mm-hmm. or robotically, uh, but rather they're referring to the rules as they try to figure out what to do, and these rules are evolving in a particular way. Uh, from 93 to early 94, that essentially introduced more caution into the UN. So it, 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 they're much more risk-averse. Uh, they're using language like, we should only use peacekeeping when there's a peace to keep. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a growing sense that the UN doesn't do civil wars, it doesn't do peace enforcement. And you know this is all happening, I think, for some very understandable reasons, which is that, you know, if you're going to use the UN, it should be, you know, built for purpose um, rather than, you know, tossed in like a sacrificial lamb, which I think what the Security Council was doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it made sense then to introduce these rules that, you know, basically said, you know, let's use our head and not our hearts when we make decisions. And... I think this is a very powerful argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the consequence, though, was that as UN officials began to think about how to proceed, they're not only drawing from these rules, but they're also trying to figure out what member states will do. Mm-hmm. And it turns out member states aren't going to do much. And so as UN officials began to draw up plans and begin to think about what should be done, uh, they are taking into account the rules, and they're also trying to take into account what member states will do. And remember, they're doing this at a time of Bosnia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Garazda is actually the number one issue on the Security Council during April '94, and this was a safe haven that was being, you know, just simply constantly shelled by the Serbs. And the U and the NATO wasn't able to do anything, and so you sort of look at Rwanda and you go, you know, if NATO can't handle protecting the safe havens, how can we imagine the member states 
going into the middle of a civil war in Rwanda, which, you know, later we find out it's a genocide. So there's just, um, you know, from the standpoint of the Security Council then, there's just a lot of, and from the UN officials, there's just a lot of concern about what can be done. And the rules are telling them that really not much can be done. And by the way, these rules are also understood to be good for the UN uh, because they protect the UN from being used for situations it's not well prepared for. Mm -hmm. And in other words, you know, you don't want to use the UN, you don't want to give the UN a fatalistic job. You want Mm -hmm. to actually give it a chance to be successful. And the lessons from Somalia and Bosnia and other places was that, you know, uh, this is not something the U.N. can do. So as much as you want to do something, I think U.N. officials are, are pulling on the rules and calculating the risks and deciding that Rwanda is just not their job. So, so you talk about rules and you talk about contexts. So Garajda and Bosnia more broadly and in the broader broader environment of peacekeeping in 93 and 94. But they're also leaders. And so you write a lot about Boutros Boutros Ghali and Kofi Annan and um, some of the other people in the Department of Peacekeeping Operations. What role did they play, the the people in New York, what role did they play in guiding UN deliberations and decisions? Yeah, uh, I mean, and this is why I want to emphasize that I don't want to create a, a caricature in which individuals mindlessly follow rules, yeah. because a lot of times rules are ambiguous. Uh, we know that actually, um, you know, from our personal lives, we have the ability to use rules for ulterior motives. Uh, that there's so you know, rules provide a lot of agency or play for individuals. The, the parts that, and this goes back to something I said earlier, which was uh, what hadn't been entered into the Security Council deliberations uh, were, were Dallaire's cables to the Secretary General. And Dallaire is the uh, leader of Dallaire is the force commander in Rwanda, right. who's become this kind of, uh, under, I think rightly, mythical heroic figure. He's one mm-hmm. of the few people who did the right thing. Uh, and he's sending cables back to the, to the Secretary General and, uh, and to Kofi Annan saying, you know, there, there's stuff we can do. Uh, I've got a plan here. And, I, and the plan is one that's not going to go in and knock heads, but really it's going to be designed to show the UN and that the UN still cares. It's going to protect some lives on the ground. Uh, there, are, there are things that it can do that it should do, and these are all you know. This is all very important stuff, and the Secretary General buries it. He basically says, you know, this is not going to get to the Security Council. Now, this is a very disturbing development uh, because. You know, if you if you want to follow rules, it's actually not the secretary's general general's job to decide what information matters and which one doesn't. His job is to turn over the relevant information. Not only was he not turning over the relevant information, but he was, I think, strategically withholding it 
because he knew, and, and, and I really want to emphasize this despite the absence of evidence, uh, he knew that if, in fact, as he was doing, saying that we're not getting any help from Delaire, and they seem to be overwhelmed by what's going on, and we're still waiting for instructions, well, that simply reinforces the Security Council's view that nothing can be done in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, Scali basically, I think, presents or, or projects an image then that's completely counter to what Delaire is saying. And I don't know, I, I, and I really mean this sincerely, I don't know whether things would have been different if Boutroscali had passed on the information to Delaire. I don't know if things would have been different if Kofi Annan had leaked the cables to the, mm-hmm. secret, to the Security Council. But the point is that they didn't. I can imagine a scenario in which, which is, I, 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 um, I write this fictional speech uh, by the Secretary General that, in, in my you know, active imagination, uh, convinces everybody to do something in the Security Council. But, uh, you know, we, the truth is we don't know. But I, and this is why I, I, I don't feel like I can say that Uchaskali deserves causal responsibility, mm-hmm. although there's an argument there, but certainly moral responsibility. Uh, what he did was an abject... Um, moral failure. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. And, uh, and, and I, it, it's just, I think, clear as day that uh, he, he's someone who, you know, if you want to try and find a villain in some pl- way, mm-hmm. this would be the guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this would be the guy. Uh, I'll just say as a note, uh, part of the reason I wrote the afterword was because I was involved in um, a project with the Holocaust Museum here in D.C. in which we were going through, you know, it's like 20 years on and they wanted to go through the documentary record and there have been a lot of things that have been released. And then there was this meeting in the Hague with a lot of the participants uh, who had, you know, been involved in the decision-making. And, and boy, there, there was... I, I, I've never heard a group that was... Um, let's just say more annoyed with, and that's being kind, more annoyed with Boutros Ghali than any, any group I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it was pretty clear. And it wasn't because he wasn't there so they could actually stab him in the back. Um, it's because it was, I think, clear as day to everybody in retrospect that um, this was a guy who really allowed in many ways, the genocide to happen. So has he ever given an explanation? No, no one knows. No <laughs> one knows. Um, there are all these conspiracy theories out there, and I'm not one to believe in conspiracy theories. Uh, what, you know, at first it was, oh, the U.S. got to Boutroscali, and if you know anything about the Americans' relations with Boutroscali, that's just ludicrous, because <laughs> uh, they really did hate each other. Um, so that that you know he wasn't Boutros Ghali wasn't going to do the U.S. any favors. Then there were those who said, no, 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 it's the French. 
the French were involved. And, you know, he got a golden parachute from the French after he was booted mm-hmm. from the Secretary General's office. So that, you know, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but he, had, he, he was a Francophone and, and so, a Francophile. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, maybe that. Uh, it, it also could be that he just thought that the U.N. was being set up for failure and wanted to protect the U.N. Um, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I honestly don't know. And it, it could very well be that uh, this was not something he cared about. Uh, he didn't actually have that great of a record when it came to crimes against humanity. Mm. Uh, it's not, you know, you don't see him, you know, there's that famous moment where he goes to Sarajevo and he tells them basically to stop whining, <laughs> that he can find <laughs> 10 other places in the world that are worse off, huh. um, which might objectively be true, Yeah, but it's not a great soundbite. <laughs> now, this is an interesting point about history writing, and I, I, I clearly don't write about this in the same way you do, but I've mentioned on the podcast before briefly about my reacting to the past uh, project with Rwanda, and so I've had to write um, a, a description for students who are playing the role of Boutros Boutros Ghali in the classroom and trying to decide what to do, and I've struggled to, to figure out exactly how to write this and how to figure out what his goals are, and I've kind of, by default, come to the description that he has the long-term future of the UN in mind and short-term pain, however terrible, if it gets the UN, if, if, if it causes the UN to lose capacity to intervene in the future, um, that's not an acceptable compromise. But I have to admit, that's my best guess. Yeah, and I would, I would generally agree, but I, again, with that sense that I just don't know. Yeah. Um, I I just don't know, and you know the other thing I would say is that it was not his choice to make. Mm, yeah, you know that that's just not his. At the end of the day, it's the Security Council that gets to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're going to take on that responsibility, which is what he did, then you got to take the blame. Um, yeah, that makes so, sense. No, yeah, this is interesting. I, I, because I actually give a three or four of Dallaire's cables to the to the person playing Boutros Boutros Ghali and let them decide what they're going to do with them. And then we use that as an avenue to talk about the role of institutional culture and leadership and what do in they say? What do they do? Um, it varies by person. Um, and this is, of course, the problem with role-playing, because it's hard to put yourself in the role of somebody who you know didn't necessarily cause a genocide, but perhaps facilitated it. Um, some of them will be cynical and say that my my goal is to preserve the long-term future of the UN, and if that means keeping important information away from them, that's a good thing. Some people will not. But these, of course, are Midwestern Americans who are 20 years old. Yeah. Um, another one of the people that are groups, countries, whatever, that's often talked about as evil or the villain is France. Um, yeah. how, how, how do you assess France's or the French politicians' behavior? You know, the one thing I will say, I came back, I've always thought French was the villain. Um, mm-hmm. And I've never, un, and, but, I, but then again, that's just 
my typical American anti-French <laughs> perspective. Just kidding. Um, the, um, but, I, but my conclusion actually changed a little bit from the experience in The Hague and reading some of the documents. And, and I do think that, on the, you know, I think French policy was difficult to discern. Uh, there's no question that they were supportive of the government, but I don't think there's any doubt now that they were also trying to communicate in strong terms to Javier Mond and others that they weren't going to put up with a lot more monkey business, mm -hmm. that it wasn't unconditional love, and, so, and there were limits. And, in fact, they were trying to communicate them and pull things back a little bit. I think... They were, you know, from what I can tell, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's, there are so many French, in, you know, agents in Rwanda at the time that may have, you know, been, you know, French officials but disconnected from the French government that we, we actually don't know a lot. Mm -hmm. um, there's, I, I don't think there's any question that once, you know, they had played a role in, in helping to train the shock troops, mm -hmm. and their role in Operation Turquoise, which was basically a cover for uh, the withdrawal of the Genesee I think, you know, they have a lot to answer for there. Mm -hmm. But they've not been, you know, there's been some, you know, part of it, part of it is I'm not kept up on the more recent debates. Uh, I think there's, there's some general suspicion that, you know, the French were... I, and I would say, having been in the Security Council at the time, the French were suspiciously quiet. Mm. Um, so I, you know, and, and that was interpreted by anybody, everybody in the Security Council as trying to protect Rwanda. So, mm. Mm -hmm. which, you know, it was their ally. So much of the writing about the UN and Rwanda focuses on these great powers, on the U.S. or on France, to a lesser extent Russia or, or Britain. Uh, or, or, or perhaps the two countries or three countries that clearly staked out, the smaller countries that staked out a, a place in favor of intervention, Nigeria, New Zealand, Czech, Czech Republic. But what do, you, what do you make of these other countries? And, and, and maybe that's a specific question about um, Rwanda, but maybe it's a broader question about how, as a small country, Pakistan, Spain, whatever it is, on a security council filled with permanent powers, how do they manage to create a, a space for themselves to talk and some kind of influence, or, 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 or don't well, they? Well, because they had no instructions. Mm. Uh, it was actually interesting. You know, it's one of the things where if, if you're Britain or the U.S. or or Russia or China, you know, you're overloaded with instructions. You can't really make a move without getting huh. instructions from the capital. Uh, but what I was told was that, you know, when Keating from New Zealand goes in and says things, he's basically speaking for himself. Hmm. Uh, when Kervanda from the Czech Republic is speaking, he's, he's kind of just saying what's on his mind. Uh, and I'm not saying they're completely free agents, but uh, they're kind of unrestricted in ways that others aren't. And I would also say that, you know, in many ways, you know, what they have to say, I, I, this is going to sound really awful, but in many ways doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, because no one, you know, they're talking a big game, but they're not offering troops. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. so part of what they're able to do, and this was part of my frustration, is that when everybody says the U.N. needs to do something, they first look at the U.S. Mm-hmm. and says, do something. And so the U.S. becomes, by default, the world's policeman. And, you know, as much as I want to say that I think the U.N. does, the U.S. does have a role in helping to uh, stop genocide and atrocity crimes and the like, it's it's it, this is an international community problem, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think we want to be put in a situation where it's only the U.S. And so, you know, the Czech Republic can say everything at once, but at the end of the day, there aren't going to be any Czech troops, and you know that was never on the table. New Zealand's mm-hmm. not going. Uh, Nigeria could go, but they didn't go, uh, and so. And this is, I think, part of the frustration for the U.N., and I think this is actually one of the calculations of U.N. officials, which was, you know, they're going to, you know, the fear they're going to authorize the intervention, and then they're not going to find troops. Yeah. So, you know, what good is that? And, in fact, Butrascali did solicit, when I thought he was sort of in a, uh, prejudicial way to see whether, in fact, you could get troops in, and and there was there were no takers. No one wanted to go. Hmm. So you mentioned the conference, and so, so may, I, let me back up. First of all, why did why a new a new edition of the book now? Um, uh, for sales. Uh, uh-huh. No, and the um, the uh, the reason for the for for the edition was. <sighs> You know, I I just gone through thousands of pages of documentation, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and part of the reason I did that was because I really wanted to know if the new information would cause me to change my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when I wrote the book at the time, it was the best book I could write. You know, given my own limitations and the limitations of the evidence, and so I always knew that. You know, although I thought I got the story right, and actually I, I do think I got the story right, uh, there was always the very real chance that I got the story wrong, mm-hmm. uh, that there was other evidence out there that I hadn't seen, hadn't been unearthed. And so I just thought, you know, having gone through this documentation, uh, I just thought it would be kind of worthwhile, for, and having gone to The Hague, uh, worthwhile then to, you know, write a new afterward that ref- mm-hmm on what we know 20 years after the after the genocide. So, so let uh, me flip that around. What do we not know? What what do we need to know? Where should a good graduate student interested in Rwanda? What should they I be think we still in? don't know. I, I I actually think we still don't know enough about the French. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think we don't know enough about the RPF. Mm. Uh, I don't think we know enough about um, some of the, uh, the 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 killings, maybe the many genocides that took place behind RPF lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to know more about the RPF strategy during the campaign. I mean, these are things that you know. I I, I don't want to say they're esoteric. I mean, they're important for historians, important for understanding Rwanda. But I think those are. Those are, are, for me, some of the big... And we don't know who shot down the plane still. I mean, yeah. uh, it's still, you know, I, it, it's still up for grabs, I think. So, so I wonder, coming back to where we started, 
you were at the UN for at least some of this. What do you remember not thinking, but feeling while you were there, or, or, or maybe not? I mean, what was it like emotionally to be involved in these, at least even peripherally in these discussions at the time? At the time, I just remember thinking, I, I cannot wait to get back to academia. <laughs> uh, seriously, that, um, I, I don't know if you can do this on a podcast, but uh, that that this was such uh, BS uh-huh. uh, that, you know, this is all a game that was being played while people were dying, that people mm-hmm. were more concerned about how they looked than what they did. Um that this was, you know, this is politics at its cynical best. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not under illusion that as an academic I contribute much, but <laughs> I, I didn't think that, you know, propping up a system that was basically designed to ensure that nothing happens, but that people think there's something going to happen. Mm-hmm. was a useful exercise. So I I came away, you know, I, I, I can't say I went to the UN um, as, as a huge fan, but I certainly came away, you know, if the, if the Council for Relations wanted me to recognize how complicated it is, I, I certainly got that <laughs> lesson. So... You know, in many ways, and, and I can't say I was struck by, and, and this is the part that I, I, I can't say I remember thinking about this as a genocide, that some, because it's a genocide, something can be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think like everybody else, I was in the minutia, and, you know, and I don't know, as we talk about denial, you know, we, we, you know mm-hmm. Stanley Cohen and others talk about sort of the way denial works. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think for me there was an element of denial that probably was there because I knew nothing can be done, and if you were to really recognize what was taking place, which I did, um, then I think the the uh, the contradiction would be too much to live with in some ways. Mm-hmm. So I think there are a lot of people there who uh, find you know their coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I will say this, the first few months after I, I um, you know, returned to civilian life, I, I wrote about how the decision was justifiable. Mm-hmm. Much to the chagrin of a lot of people, but I can still make a, com- I can still make a compelling case. Uh, so, yeah. anyway. Well, we've taken a lot of your time. Um, so, so I always conclude these interviews with a couple of questions, and, and the first um, is is often a fake question because during the busyness of the semester, I never actually have time to read during the weekends. I always have grading to do, but in theory, it's summer, and in theory, I have time. Uh, so maybe I'll ask you to suggest a book or two or a movie or something that I or our listeners can read over the the weekend. Something that that had an impact on you. Well, I, I think the first thing would be Tal- Talladega Nights with, uh, hmm. with Will Ferrell. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> my daughter's favorite movie, so I have to mention that. Um, you know, I, I've, been, I've been spending a lot of time uh, 
thinking, actually. I mean, the one thing you can't, I think, help but do if you study the Holocaust and genocide is you can't avoid this question of evil. Yeah. Uh, it's not, you know, I, I realize that, you know, when, when George Bush said there's an axis of evil, he, he immediately drained it of any meaning. Uh, but I, I don't think it's possible, you know, to, to study the Holocaust, study Cambodia, study Rwanda, Guatemala, Syria, mm-hmm. and not come away wondering about this concept, even though it's not fashionable. And the book I read that uh, has, and I wish I was actually really smart enough to understand the book, but I was smart enough to get probably 60% of it, which was enough for me, uh, was this book by Susan Neiman called Evil and Modern Thought, uh, which I just, you know, I, I, I thought was, tremendously interesting. And uh, this is basically, you know, how do philosophers deal with the question of evil? And, you know, and and it's written in an extraordinarily fluid and articulate way. Um, And, you know, it's one of these, I have to say, you know, I I, I tend not to write, to read books that are longer than the Bible. Uh, I don't know if this is longer than the Bible, but it, it was certainly, uh, you know, took a commitment, but it was well worth it. Yeah. Huh. Uh, so, and the other one I read that's really appropriate to Rwanda, I think. I, I recently read Jan Gross's Neighbors, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and I don't know if you've read it. It's, mm-hmm. but it's one of the, you know, that's I think a remarkable book yeah. that you know, and talk about sort of reflection on the historical method, and 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 thinking about. You know how we understand what happened in this one town, uh, I, I, and neighbor to neighbor, which is what Rwanda was. I couldn't help but think mm-hmm. about Rwanda as I was reading this. Uh, I thought that was, you know, uh, uh, in many ways, that's, you know, there, there, there's ways to write, and I often like to read things that force me to, as we've talked about it a little bit, think about the writing process. Sure. And how one crafts an argument, and uh, I'm all, and I thought that was just a beautifully written exposition. Hmm. Well, my daughter has softball tryouts this weekend, so I won't actually read them this weekend, but maybe next week <laughs> I will get to them. You know, I, I find you know bringing evil and modern thought. The real thing that you want to keep on the bench is you're watching your daughter you know, <laughs> <laughs> try out for softball. <laughs> Well, you know, in Kansas, there was a tournament last week, and it was 107 degrees. So oh, quite quickly, there would be sweat dripping onto the pages. But Yeah. Well, that's, that's its own form of evil. <laughs> or punishment, maybe. Or but a human rights violation. That's right. Well, the last question is simple, I think, usually. Um, and that's, that's the uh, easy question. What are you working on now? Well, um... And this is partly why I've been reading all these uplifting books. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually struggling a little bit, um, you know, intellectually struggling with this question of the relationship between suffering and progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I've, I've got this kind of weird hunch that... Part of what we see, have seen in the development of humanitarianism and human rights and international justice 
and this comes a little bit out of the Rwanda work, mm-hmm. is that these developments are in many ways manifestations of a process of atonement mm-hmm. that the West is trying to come to terms with the fact that it unleashed this horrific suffering, maybe we call it evil, and how does the West make sense of that given its own narrative of progress? Mm. And so after these great cataclysms, be World War I or World War II, uh, I, I think what you see at these moments is, uh, and it is, I, I do purposely evoke sort of theological and religious concepts, I do think that there's a sense of atonement that, you know, we, the lives can't have been lost for nothing. Yeah. that there are sacrifices that have been made. I mean, a lot of the language is religious. Uh, but, I, but I think this actually, you know, it, it's, it's that kind of build back better for the international community. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of what I've been, I've been working on lately and wrestling with is sort of how one thinks about these post-war moments in, uh, in many ways and in, in these kind of theological uh, ways. That's really fascinating. Um, so, uh, I look forward to reading whatever comes out of it, and assuming it shows up in book form, um, or even something <laughs> vaguely like it, we would love to have you on the show again to talk about it. But for now, thank you so much for joining us. Um, well, thank you for having me. I've, I've enjoyed it. Uh, have a wonderful summer. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Michael Barnett about the new edition of his book, Eyewitness to Genocide, The United Nations in Rwanda. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My occasional series on Rwanda will continue soon with an interview with Timothy Longman, but I hope you'll join me next time when I'll interview Ethan Hollander about his new work, Hegemony in the Holocaust, State Power and Jewish Survival in Occupied Europe. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.